The following podcast is brought to you by the Fancy Animation Research Network. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, then please do visit our website, fantasy-animation.org. When you're there, you can have a little look around, you can read our blog posts, you can listen again to some of these podcasts, and you can also join our mailing list. We are currently looking for contributors to write up short posts that cover a range of media that engage with the relationship between fantasy and animation. You are welcome to write film reviews, conference reviews, uh, reports, wider editorials, and generally keep us and our readers up to date on everything fantasy animation. For more information on how to submit posts, please do visit the website and get in touch. For now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast uh, with myself Alex Sargent and myself Chris Holiday. We are delighted on this particular episode to be joined by some special guests and seasoned podcast veterans, uh, Michael Glass and Jose Arroyo, who comprise the eavesdropping at the movies team. So Michael and Jose, thank you very much for, for joining us and for getting involved in our conversations. Thanks for having us. Um, so today we are talking about Coco, Pixar's 2017 feature uh, that takes us both into the land of the living and specifically into la- the land of the dead. So when we posited this idea of, of, of special guests and a kind of crossover episode between the eavesdropping and the movies team, you mentioned Coco. So where are you coming from? Because I think it obviously speaks quite obviously to my interest in animation and potentially Alex's interest in, in fantasy. Um, is it a film you love? What, what do you love about it? What angle are you kind of coming to the film from? Uh, well, I, I come from it for, from two perspectives, really. I, I first of all just thought that it was a great film. It was like, it's my top 10 of the year for sure. Right. So, you know, I, I think just, um, you know, as a work of art in itself, I think it's absolutely great, right? So that was the first thing. Yeah. Um, and the other reason why I thought it would be um, interesting to talk about it is because I can't think of another American, uh, you know, animated Pixar film yeah. um, that actually involves a lot of uh, the other cultures that comprise American culture. Yeah. Right? So it's the Mexicanness of this film and the address to, you know, a, an audience of Latins in North America. And also the way that it engages with Mexican cinema, Mexican culture, Mexican music. Right? It's something that um, you very rarely see uh, in American cinema. And I thought that constituted a kind of breakthrough, really. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that when we were watching the film, I, I kind of had this idea of appropriation, and it would be interesting to get your views on, because that was some of the kind of gnarly points with the film, that the film is using and using up that kind of, of culture. So it would be interesting mm. to see, from your perspective, how you felt about that as mm. we kind of move through the film. Mike, what about you? What's your kind of take on the, on the uh, film? Well, for me, a lot of, I mean, everything Jose says I agree with. On top of that, it's a film that kind of came out of nowhere for me. I mean, right. uh, you know, Pixar's no surprise that they make great films, but there are films that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Brave, I haven't seen Finding Nemo. Um, so, you know, the, I, I don't like, I'm not the guy who sees absolutely all of them, but I do <laughs> like them. And Coco kind of, I saw the trailers and then, yeah, whatever. Then we went to see it and I was blown away by it and it's become my favourite Pixar film. Right. And actually... I've started to say it should have won Best Picture last last year. I mean, I was saying that about Blade Runner 2049, which is great. <laughs> but the more I watch Coco, and I've watched it on the order of 15 or 16 times now, I've, I, it's incredibly beautifully plotted. It's so complex. And everything, every every aspect to what goes on in the story has kind of a, has a double meaning or or a double purpose, and things are reconfigured and changed on a on a really regular basis in it, things like the photograph and the guitar and exactly what their functions are and how they change and what they mean to people, depending on, depending on what people know and where, they, where the story's up to. It's, it's incredibly complexly plotted and I think it's an absolute masterpiece because you don't really notice it. It all just kind of makes sense all the way through. And the more, the more I watch that, the more I watch it, the more I feel 
in awe of how it how the story's put together on top of other things like just how incredibly beautiful yeah. it looks and things like that I, yeah, so one of my favourite films. It's, yeah, no, I'll just say, my, my, I've written the word sumptuous a lot, I think, in my <laughs> screening notes, that there's, there's so many, and I can totally see why you would have seen it so many times, because there are so many different things that you can, not, not necessarily to interpret, per se, but just simply to see. Yeah. Like, it's, it seems to be a quite stuffed, it's a stuffed film. There's so much to, to kind of look at, and, uh, and there are bits to the film that I keep kind of forgetting, and every time I go back to it, um, I've seen it a handful of times, and about you, Alex, you've... Yeah, well, uh, two or three, I think. Yeah. So, so I'm, I, I think perhaps haven't unpacked it quite as fully as, <laughs> as Michael has there. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting that um, what you were talking about resonated very much with what I was thinking about, in both in terms of its sort of use and engagement with folklore and engagement with sort of um, uh, Mexican traditions and, 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 and traditions of the fantastic um, in terms of the relationship to the dead, but also sort of this, the world building of the whole thing yeah. and, and how it constructs this lovely metaphoric realm of the, uh, you know, the, the world of the dead that so much to, you know that, that speaks so much to the use of memory within within this story in this society and and to me that the, the 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 complexity and intricacy of it is in these sort of the way it nicely limberly sets up all these rules to the world without feeling like that cla that you know that slog that you often have to go through in fantasy fiction where they sit down and explain what's going on and the rules and usually a map gets involved and we um, point around it, don't we? And it, it nimbly skips over all of that whilst doing it all at the same time. Absolutely. No, I mean, we could start... I mean, it's difficult to know where to start given its sumptuousness, where to start. Um, for me, I think this issue of Mexicanness and, and ties into its identity as a work of art. So I think the first the first announcement that the film makes or proclamation or invitation that the film makes to this idea of, of another culture is the music that plays over the magic castle like the Disney logo that isn't the traditional kind of fanfare it's the traditional image but it's not the traditional fanfare you get the Disney castle and the camera kind of rotating around the castle but up against it you have this sort of beautiful guitar music and almost instantly we're okay so this is something and they Disney did this with Frozen. You hear the sort of uh, chanting of the, the Icemen as they kind of carve the ice, and, and suddenly it's a different register. So immediately for me in this, in this kind of Pixar film, both over the Disney logo and then the Pixar logo that we know and love, um, you have a, a shift in the, the soundtrack. And immediately I remember going to the cinema to see it and thinking, ah, oh, okay, so it's, it's going for it here. Um, and, then, and then it replaces that sort of setting up of the rules. It set, it, it, rather than having the fairy tale book that opens and you, you know, once upon a time. Yeah. Um, I think I lent over to you, Alex, in the, in the screening and said, oh, they've replaced the fairy tale book with these quite ornate, um, what look like kind of cutouts that are yeah. hanging from, yeah, I don't know. Cutouts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that sort of does the job of the, of the fairy tale book. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, I was like, is it a fairy tale or it's setting up, it's the voiceover of Miguel telling this story, but it's done through a totally sort of different way. Yes. Um, I mean, I loved all of that, and it does so at the end again, <laughs> yes. right? So because it's Natalia Lafourcade, who, who Lafourcade, who, who you know is a, a huge Mexican pop singer, mm. um, her voice comes in at the very end of the of the credits, right? And I don't know what the equivalent would be here, but you know, if if, if you if you heard the the instantly recognizable voice, uh, like a Beyonce or someone. <laughs> well, I was th I was thinking in England more like. Uh, um, What's her name? Who's just written an autobiography? Yeah, you, you picked the wrong. Adele, Adele, Little Mix. Yeah, you know, just the most recognizable right. pop voice yeah. of the moment. Yeah, you know, she she comes on. So so I mean, for me, it's a it's it's a really interesting, groundbreaking film for those reasons. I mean, you know, it's set in Mexico, mm. right? Um, it's addressing and engaging with and speaking through um, you know a whole history and a whole culture and a whole set of um, frameworks that are not American and actually I, for me kind of you know that's a really interesting thing because never at any moment do you feel that you don't get it right <laughs> it's kind of instantly legible you're with the film emotionally kind of throughout you know I kind of I saw it with Mike and you know he didn't get any of those references and you know he was still in tears yeah <laughs> I, w I would have been in tears had you not been there ruining it for me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reason I've watched it so much since. So I can cry on my own. I mean, I've got a question about Santa Cecilia because I was, I suppose a lot of the Pixar movies, well, a lot of them, give or take a, a couple, are a sort of anywhere. So there's certainly the, the, the Toy Story films take place in an America, um, fi fictional or not. And it's quite difficult. It has icons and images that we would associate with certain kinds of kind of suburban America. Mm. Um, 
this film, as you said, it, it does a very good job right at the start of establishing, and Alex, you said this about kind of the world. Um, I just wondered what was it about, we go from that opening sequence and the, the kind of um, uh, paper cutouts, that are, and then the camera goes down and we're in the street scenes. So how is that, I was trying to kind of think what makes it authentic, how, what job does that opening sequence perform okay. in, in establishing the, um, I guess the, because ultimately it needs to be legible in a way that departs from the subsequent fantasy. It has to read as authentic and real for the fantasy intrusion to make sense. Whilst also sort of reassuring any kind of, uh, you know, uh, contemporary anxieties over sort of Orientalism yeah. or a reappropriation or something. And I think it does a very good job of doing that, but it's I hard think... to articulate how, I think. Well, uh, okay, so yeah. let me give it a try. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It might not succeed. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think, I think... Uh, the reason why it avoids uh, um, any kind of cultural exploitation or, I think, appropriation. Mm -hmm. Well, appropriation implies, first of all, that the people making the film are other mm -hmm. to that culture. And actually, there's no way of knowing that, even from the names of the credits. I mean, for all we know, you know, half of the people who worked on this film are from some kind of Latin American background. Yeah. So we don't know that, right? But what we do know, what we see very clearly, is that the filmmakers are completely conversant with Mexican culture of a particular type. And actually, I was very drawn to this because I spent the summer just writing about Maria Felix films. Yeah, she's somebody who's very interesting to me. You know, she was a huge star all over Europe and Latin America. It's one of those world stars who, um, you know, English-speaking people don't know mm. because, you know, they didn't quite make it in England or America. But they're, you know, huge stars, you know, pretty much all over the rest of the world. And it's very interesting that this film, you know, uh, it, it has a, a little quotation from, you know, one of her most famous films, Enamorada, you know, the, the um, singing mariachi uh, uh, is, well, there are several actors in, in Mexican film history who could fit that role, but one of them is certainly one of Maria Felix's husbands, Jorge <laughs> Negrete, who was a huge star, right? Kind of, and you know, you see things of like, uh, he's on his horse, right? You know, kind yeah. of. Um, so, so and, and there are references to Dolores del Rio, there are references to Frida Kahlo, there's different references yeah. to mariachis. Right, there's difference. There's references to a type of dancing and types of singing, and there's a. It's very variegated, right? It's not one thing. So for me, for example, and and this may be a, an incorrect example, but I remember kind of seeing Mulan, and you know, feeling I love Mulan, yeah. but you really get the sense that it's some Americans kind of you know making a story and setting it kind of in China, really. Whereas actually, I you know, I think there are all kinds of references here that indicate at least. A not, a, an in-depth knowledge of what they're referencing. Yeah, I, I actually um, was struck when I was thinking about, we did a podcast a few months ago on um, Moana, um, and there's a similar sort of feeling of, of a culture that you're skimming over, but there's a depth to it, both on the screen and in its sort of world building, that you're perhaps not picking up on the references from, from you know, a, a white British man's perspective, but you're feeling the authenticity and the depth on screen for exactly these sort of reasons. And I think they had a similar behind-the-scene production in terms of Polynesian um, yeah. society and, and structure in that. So, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this because there's such a strong history of the, the opposite being true, but we might be in an era where Disney are finally starting to take seriously the responsibility of telling stories that are unique to cultures and yet can transcend cultures based on the strength of these two movies alone <laughs> but uh, you know I think that's true up to a point yeah. right? uh, Disney's always going to be making telling stories of basically where what, they're a corporation they're going to be yeah. where the money is and, yeah. and if the money is increasingly in respecting other people yeah then, well that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 like, right. that's a good thing but, but yeah but <laughs> my understanding of the current demographic is that the US is now at a point mm. where Spanish uh, is on the verge of becoming the language uh, that most people speak or most people's first language in the United States. So if that is true or close to being true, then that alone explains. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not attributing any altruism on the part of the Disney Corporation, but it's doing the job anyway. So that's, yes. you know, you know it, it, regardless as to their motives, it's achieving what hasn't been achieved in a while, which is some respect for cultures that aren't Anglo-Saxon and, and white. You know. mm. I think the other side to what Jose was saying about um, about kind of picking up on iconography or, or famous mm -hmm. people and that sort of thing in a, in a very varied way. Um, I think the other thing that Coco does successfully is is take uh, Mexican 
thing. So particularly the Day of the Dead, which I think is on the isn't that a UNESCO heritage thing. Uh, it's kind of protected by UNESCO, I think. Um, and it kind of very successfully identifies what is generally applicable about about them to all people. It's basically talking about things like family and memory and how like the Day of the Dead is this incredible bizarre thing to to an outsider but actually it's very simple it's about remembering your relatives and it turns it obviously into this story about actually literally you remembering them literally keeps them alive in the afterlife kind of thing but um i think there's no suggestion of of it kind of looking at something going looking at it from a from a kind of outsider's perspective it feels like an insider story yes. you know, it feels like it absolutely mm. understands everything it doesn't feel like it's looking at it's going isn't this kind of weird but let's set a story here like you might be talking about with uh, with Mulan you know mm. I mean there's I, I wonder whether this sort of and certainly my, my knowledge of something like Moana and, and actually Pixar and, and Coco is that that idea of affectionate sort of retelling and, and immersion and as you said there's a, an interior that they're working from within yeah. that culture rather than from outside it uh, often plays into the sort of the, the rhetoric that surrounds these films that Pixar went to these places or they they did their research yeah. and this has become an increasingly important way in which these kinds of films these kinds of films but um, are framed even going back to something like Finding Nemo or, or Up, where in order to pay homage to a particular kind of environment, they did their research, they got their mm -hmm. scuba diving qualifications. And of course, this is part of the kind of image of Pixar as a um, positive force for shining a light on different parts or corners of the of the globe. Um, Which is industry sanctioned and all this exactly. sort of stuff. Exactly. So there's potentially something insidious, and I, yeah. and I absolutely understand that. But um, I do think with something like Coco, that there, a lot of effort was made, and, and Lee Unkrich, the director, specifically kind of came out and said, we, we, we did a lot of research because we kind of didn't want to do it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I I'm kind of with you guys. I feel that it, it, it felt... Um, uh, affectionate and sincere and actually I wondered as I was watching I then wondered whether those kinds of ideas are embedded in the film and there's a couple of lines that De La Cruz says something about the world is our family and then Hector says um, oh sorry De La Cruz then says to Hector you're confusing things with reality Hector yeah. this idea that I want I just wondered or I had this sense of I wonder whether Pixar are, are, are building in a sort of resistance or potential resistance or a potential response to an audience resistance to the way that they are treating this kind of culture that it's it's great. There's a archaeological function here that we're looking at shining a light on particular kinds of cultures that are mm -hmm. that that why shouldn't they sustain a, a feature film yeah. in this way? Yeah, I mean, I, I also I'm, so so there's some things that we don't know. I mean, looking at the credits the other day, right? It seemed that um, you know there were there were four writers and. You know, it's a film that's co-directed, right? Yeah. And it did seem to me, and I mean, I now can't dig up the, I can't remember the name, but it did seem to me that the co-director at least had a Hispanic name, right? I don't want to make more of it than, you know, than what it is. I, but I just kind of, this idea that, I think it's very different for an American film to do a Moana or to do a Coco, and only because of the makeup of you know America, like mm -hmm. what is America? America is to a large extent Latin. Its its roots are Latin, right? Kind of you know, there's been kind of Mexicans, <laughs> you know, uh, up in Oregon and through Texas and whatever, kind of much longer than you know, kind of yeah, uh, white settlers or yeah. So so this idea that somehow the foreignness of Mexico in America, I think, is you know quite a different issue yeah. than kind of you know. Mulan or um, Paris or yeah kind of yeah yeah I think the only analogy I was trying to make with Moana is there is at least the Hawaiian sure. uh, aspect and that there's that but I completely agree the Mexican thing is far more um, there's a far more sort of um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for really is but there's a much more sort of well, there's more of them, there's more of them <laughs> and it's more it's more um, mm. widespread yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And also, I think, you know, so we were talking on the one hand, you used the word stuffed earlier on. Yeah. <laughs> which I kind of, you know, I don't like because it implies that it's messy and things are seeping. Whereas, you know, yeah. I, I think this is really textured, right? Yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, it's very, it's absolutely clear, it's absolutely legible. On the other hand, you know, the more you see, the more um, you, your eye finds. And as you said, sometimes in terms of a reaction, so it's not necessarily an interpretation, it's just... A reaction, something that you didn't notice before, aspects of the music or the, or the way that the images work. So for example, one of the things that we did coming here is I just wanted to have a clearer sense of the images in Coco, right? So I was just, I put it on pause and, 
and then I just kind of not fast forward, but I went to skip through. Yeah, yeah, and you know, just just to get a sense of what the what the what what the angle what the compositions are. and actually, what struck me almost immediately is that, you know, though the compositions are really kind of interesting. There's just like this immense difference of, you know, you press the play button and everything comes alive, right? So there's just like a huge difference between the still image and the moving image in Coco, which is, I mean, that's The one we did that on was the bridge, there's, there's a, the leaf bridge that goes across. We yeah. did it several times, actually. Yeah. You know, but that's the one where you went, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> no, because it becomes something yeah. other in movement, yeah. right? Yeah. That's the whole thing about animation, really, you know, at its best, right? That it just becomes kind of something much greater and, and more interesting and richer as soon as it's in motion. It's, it's animated, <laughs> right? It's not just a still uh, image. Um, so, so the movement brings it something. Uh, and I thought that was kind of, yeah, so, so it's on those levels, but an important level of that is that the film is also referencing Mexican culture. It's not referencing American culture. Obviously, there's ways in which things overlap, mm. right? You know, and which is very Pixar, Disney, you know, a kind of, uh, 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 you know, the centrality of family. And yeah, and actually, it's very American in some ways, so your family should be there to help you realize who you are rather than blocking who you want to be, right? Kind of, you know, I I don't know if those are necessarily the hot topics of, you know, conversation (laughs) in in many Mexican cities, but they might be. Yeah, so, but on the other hand, it's kind of, it does feel that Mexican culture is part of this particular film's DNA. It's not just something that's added on or brought in to create kind of, you know, uh, um, an exotic background to what might be an American, yeah, reworking yeah. of a of a story or something. I think one of the really telltale signs of that as well is that the film's confident enough to make jokes about it, and I mean like teasing jokes. You know, particularly about Frida Kahlo, who uh, is probably the most famous Mexican ever, and uh, kind of a worldwide icon, and is uh, basically the butt of jokes in the film. You know, mm-hmm. that first joke about it's illegal to falsify a monobrow, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, wonderful. And I, I think it's really telling because it's, if, if they weren't as confident about the research they'd done, about the people they had involved making it and that sort of thing, they wouldn't have been as confident making those jokes either, I don't think. I think when you, the more you know a culture or know a place or know a person or whatever, the more comfortable you will be in teasing them. And actually, and the other side of that is people really enjoy a good joke about themselves, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, can, I don't know what the kind of, um, in any specificity, what kind of Mexican or uh, Mexican-American response has been to the film, but I'd imagine it's fantastic because it shows the culture such a level of respect mm. to the point where it'll kind of needle it a little bit, mm. you know, which I think is great. So, I mean, I'm interested in this idea of sort of legibility, and actually I think you're absolutely right that it plays out, the film is legible, and certainly for me is that it plays out, kind of spatialises Land of the Dead versus Land of the Living, and I, I very very quickly got on board with. Okay, so mm. the film takes place in Santa Cecilia, Mexico, here, uh, and then it is connected geographically, but through fantasy, to this other space. And really, the whole film was about the interplay and the kind of reciprocating relationship between the land of the living and the land of the dead. Um, we, we kind of we don't need to go through the the kind of plot in any any great detail, but really, there are the film sort of takes us through. The character Miguel takes us from one space to the other, um, and then the film really plots his his journey back to the land of the the, the living, but in a way that he picks up all these different kinds of characters and and um, it's an ense- I, I like the fact that it's an ensemble piece. There's lots of yes. really nice characters, a really really well defined characters mm. um, that I think feed into that into that culture. Um, perhaps overstuffed is is the wrong kind of phrase. It's intricately detailed. Um, the word I would use is concise. You know, it has it is so full of ideas, but yeah. it's it's efficient and elegant and concise in how it kind of pairs everything down to the the minimum that it needs to be to convey what it needs to convey. I think that's what's really brilliant about it. This isn't a dream, then. You're all really out there. You thought we weren't? Well, I don't know. I thought it might have been one of those made-up things that adults tell kids, like vitamins. Miguel, vitamins are a real thing. Well, now I'm thinking maybe they could be. 
Oh, sorry everybody, we're just going to interrupt the podcast for a second there, because uh, I want to talk about ratings, Chris. What do you mean PG, 12, 12A, 15, 18, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, sure, we can talk about that too, but, but actually I wanted to talk about iTunes ratings and how you rate this podcast on iTunes and the reasons why you would. I'd rate it very good. Put that in you. Well, that, that would be good too, except you can't do that. The only way you can rate it is to go on the iTunes store in the podcast info, click ratings, and give us a very quick star review, and then a, a nice quick sentence review in the comments section. If you do that, that will increase our visibility on the store, and that means we're more likely to attract more audience members, which means more exciting conversations for the future. Okay, so what you're saying is, is that listeners... Give us the five stars and then sit back and listen to the show. Well, implicitly yes, but explicitly yes too. Gotcha. We should probably get back to the show. Yeah, let's get back to the show. So I've got a question for uh, Alex, which is, I've written down, there's one line of dialogue which is, it's not a fantasy, Um, which, as in, I'm not saying this to you now, (laughs) it is a fantasy, Um, but kind of the film obviously is rooted in divisions between uh, living and the dead, real and unreal, um, and around that, or surrounding that, we have ideas of myth and legend, and obviously Ernesto de la Cruz's mythology as a a hero, rightly or wrongly, um, and authenticity, so I wondered, with your fantasy hat on, um, because it's clearly, uh, you know, from what I know from you about fantasy cinema and fantasy literature and rhetoric and fantasy theory, the kind of collision of two worlds, one real, one fantasy, it seems an obvious candidate. Well, one of the problems about doing this podcast, Chris, is that it's, it, it creates odd comparisons in your head. So this is a sentence I didn't realise I was ever going to have to say. A Coco is very similar to Tron, um, which, is the, which is the episode we just did, in the sense that it's a similar structured movie in that you have uh, two worlds, one tra- person travelling into one, trying to get back to the other, and it's sort of dramatising the distinction between a reality and a fantasy. And then there's a whole question within the world of the fantasy as to how literal... Um, we are asked to take this because in many ways we could read uh, the world of the dead as a figurative metaphor for the the, the process of grief Mm. and the process of of remembering loved ones right you know you keep 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 the the, the idea that there is a world after death that is powered by memory Mm. and 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 that the day of the dead is about fueling that that world right Mm. And, and allowing an access between the two of them and I think the film is very good at playing with that that sort of I mean, I'm not suggesting that the film is asking us in a sort of, you know, uh, Edgar Allan Poe or Pan's Labyrinth-esque way to sort of read the film as somehow happening all in the head of the main character. I think it is taking us on a on a fantasy journey, but but it makes itself available for all kinds of figurative readings about, you know, who these characters are and what they represent. And, yes. and, and actually, this could all be seen as a sort of literalisation of the process of grief, the familial, uh, com- communal mm. process of grief that, that seems to be celebrated in um, the Day of the Dead. But for the animators, um, it is that process, because they have to make concrete and concise this idea of the afterlife. and mm. uh, Or they're, they're p- sort of sure. they're playing this out geographically by making two worlds that are connected. So actually, the animators have to play that metaphorical mm. game of, right, how are we going to narrativize from our perspective? How are we going to make this... Uh, a sort of a collision of worlds and they do it by connecting the uh, land of living and land of the dead with this sort of bridge that becomes this really important kind of checkpoint um, yes which is made of those flowers i forget what they are yeah 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 no i, I can't remember either but it's yeah yeah and, and, and the bridge sort of to me again uh, obligatory Wizard of Oz reference of the week um, but, <laughs> yeah, but sort yeah. of it has that kind of uh, you know Hollywood's classical technicolour quality to it I think Mike you know the, uh, has has brought this up before, but the film is totally connected to the Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh. I think you know it's kind of it's an obvious link for me. There are two films actually. One is called Macario, which if you know if you if you are thinking at some point about writing on this, you must see. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's a, a 1960s melodrama by Roberto Gavaldon, who is one of the great yeah. directors of melodrama, and it is literally about that. It's a peasant who has this large family uh, and who all he wants is to have one meal by himself because he's got so many kids always grabbing at his plate, right? You know, um, and so his wife steals a chicken for him, you know, and he goes to sleep, he's just about to eat it, and all of a sudden he's got the devil and God and <laughs> yeah, telling him, yeah, that he's only, he's, he's got X amount to live and, you know, will he share that chicken with them, right? 
and so this thing, this movement between the world of the dead or dreams or kind of real life and, you know, will Macario survive this and so on, it's kind of, you know, it, it's, 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 it's fascinating to see. Mm. And you could see the echoes of that uh, in Coco. And the other film that I think the echoes are, are everywhere is The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, very much. So in what way, because I was thinking when you were talking about Tron and that, <laughs> one of the things we talked about when we did the Tron episode was the sort of doubling between characters in the real world play characters in that. And I, you, there's that similar doubling, but a lot through Alive and Dead. And you have the photos that are the... the, yes. the, the, the mm what they used to be what these what these people used to be and then you have what they and actually one of the things that fascinated me was how it becomes so effective and emotive uh, through its character design when the characters themselves lack the kinds of features that you would usually latch onto in an animated film mm -hmm. you know and i know that some of the challenges for the animators are uh, trying to or were trying to create uh, effective performances through skeletons and we've talked on previous podcasts about skeletons and animation you know, from Harryhausen to skeleton, you know, Disney skeleton dance but there's something in this about even though these ca uh, these skeletons are skeletons so they lack kind of um, physiognomic features they are inc you know incredibly engaging as characters mm -hmm. and I think that's where the film really succeeds is that it catches you uh, up in, 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 in feeling towards uh, what are effectively characters that are already dead, yeah. but the way that they act and perform is, yeah, is very incredible. Expressive. Yeah, um, they they move. I mean, they, they allow the, the the skulls to morph quite a bit in order to achieve that. I think it's a smart idea. Yeah. Rather like when they make cars, the the way that people tend to animate cars is by making the headlights into eyes. And they realised when they did that, this is really stupid and it's never going to look good. So we just put the eyes on the windscreen and yeah. it lets us do so much more. It just gives us a certain amount of freedom. And and I think. It, it's one of those things that it's 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 obviously a jump. I mean, you know, skulls can't move the way they do mm -hmm. in Coco, but it they basically move them like faces. I think mm -hmm. you know there, there are things that are removed. I mean, one character says he misses his nose. Mm -hmm. Yes, but um, the nose isn't the most expressive feature of the face, and the th things that are expressive, the eyes, you know, the eye sockets mm -hmm. morph and, and change. And there's one point where Frida Kahlo kind of raises her eyebrow. I remember singular. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, she raises one part. Of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which which I really noticed, and that's that stuff is. I, I would, I, it it sounds sort of um, dismissive to say it's easy. Of course, it's not easy, but it's like it's 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 kind of the easy decision I think to make to sort of say let's 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 take a freer. Sort of side. If you compare it to something like the Lego Movie, mm. where what they did with that was say we're going to try and make it so that everything in this movie you could actually build in real life, yeah. which means it's really inexpressive, or, or it's in some ways inexpressive. But then that turns into part of the charm. You know, that's obviously not what they did here, and it was obviously the right decision. I want to mention, um, but I was going to say the lighting. Though obviously yeah. it's all animation, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the way that the animators have taken into consideration the lighting. Right, because it's very beautiful. And when you're talking about kind of giving life or making expressive um, the characters, but also of the film itself, you know, creating imagery that's very expressive, then I think kind of the lighting um, is critical in this film in a way that I've rarely seen actually in other um, animated films. Uh, you know, there, there are moments where um, Miguel is looking at, you know, the TV and actually you have you know, his reflection kind yeah. of comes out. Uh, there are moments where he's disappearing and you, you see that through light, right? The kind of, the whole bridge is kind of, in a way, it's mm. built of light. Light is given a direction in faces, the way that you often see in movies, but that you rarely see in animated film. You know, you, you, it's almost like you're seeing perspectives on light when there's an expressive kind of rationale behind it. Yeah, that's really, yeah. until you said that, I hadn't thought about it, but obviously the, one of the, there's that sequence where he first is, so he steals this guitar yes. and is cursed into the into the land of the dead and, and you know we're dealing with a sort of what UPJ family friendly uh, media here and, and it's trying to right it's clearly the animators are thinking about how we can get over the slightly squeamish inducing moment where the kid realizes he's dead for yes. all intents and purposes <laughs> running around with some skeletons and and it, and it, it actually the world of the dead is a world of light yes. isn't it, it the, the, the skin, his skin literally sort of starts glowing well, and and, yeah. and everything is 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 more uh, yes. profoundly colorful than yes. there it is in the world of the yes. living which is an interesting touch all and the it skeletons helps have these halos around yeah yes. which yeah. helps i think you know and the world of the dead when you first see it in that extraordinarily wide shot, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, actually, what's distinguishing it is the vibrancy of the light. Mm -hmm. So it's dark, 
But actually what gives it life is, is the light, you know, the light on the various things. You know, so actually I think kind of... The alibrijas as well, I mean, they literally, oh, yeah. they are luminous, they give off light. Yes. Everything in the, in, the, in the land of the dead is, is animated, is given life by light. Yes. Right. And it's sort of allowed to do so because the world of Santa Cecilia, I would assume, you know, in my mind is, is the daytime and deliberately mm. so. And, mm. and, and everything that happens in that world happens in the day. Um, and yeah. people can be seen and they can be glimpsed and mm. uh, Miguel can be found to be playing the guitar in the middle of the town square and, and there's nowhere to... Whereas in The Land of the Dead, it's, it's nighttime because that's how the film kind of sets up and the, the, the jeopardy or the narrative jeopardy is by sunup. That's the, that's the deadline that the film is, is kind of giving to, to Miguel. Um, and that sort of decision or that, that, that way of positioning The Land of the Dead as a, a space of nighttime really emphasizes those lights and absolutely i would not really thought about it but you know they are there are a series of fantastic potential desktop backgrounds in that film <laughs> oh, because yeah. of the way that the lighting works um yes. and it's something yeah for, for a land for a land that is kind of connoted through its death it, it it's more interested in the celebration aspect of it yes. and that, is a, that that celebratory element is achieved kind of through and that's i think that's right that's what makes miguel's kind of transition the moment where he strikes the guitar for the first time and as you say is is effectively killed mm -hmm. for that brief moment um, that's connoted by light and suddenly the, the kind of mm -hmm. petals um, glow so well, I think yeah light is something that is is all all in this film which makes which you know if ever a film was connected to the Pixar's logo of a lamp mm -hmm. it's this <laughs> film yes. oh, how interesting um, I, I wanted to say and this is just maybe altering the conversation because it's just a thought that's occurred to me but it does seem to me that you know the, the, the main theme of the film to me, is almost like, um, a, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a standard one, but it's only one that minorities think of. All right. <laughs> well, elaborate. But I, the, the film seems to me to be saying that it is only through finding your roots, yeah, through being connected with your ancestry, that you can truly be yourself. Yeah? Mm. So, and actually, so you see, that is the theme of roots, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of, um, yeah, so, so anyway, just to go back to this idea of, you know, who, who's the film made by, yeah. who's it for, is it appropriating, or is it speaking through, and who is it speaking to? Obviously, it's trying to speak to the whole world, right? But, yeah, kind of, it's interesting that one of the things it's kind of, it's dealing with is, you know, to be comfortable in your roots, to take pride in your roots, to acknowledge, to find your freedom through, you know, kind of... And I guess to tell stories about your roots yes. as well and, and to acknowledge your heritage. Keep yeah. them alive, you know, yeah, to absolutely. keep that heritage alive. Well, the Would film... Sorry, Alex, I was going to no, say, the no. film makes a, an interesting comparison because when we're first introduced to Hector, so when Miguel goes into the land of the dead and he befriends... And the film moment, you know, takes on this sort of buddy movie structure where him and Miguel and, and Hector are kind of... Um, walking through the land of the dead and, and Hector is positioned as this misfit and he goes back to where he effectively lives, walks through um, and introduces Miguel very, very briefly to the people that he knows and he says that these are kind of his family. Similarly, people who, who have been forgotten. And, my, and I thought, okay, so the film is, is telling us that non-nuclear families are really important and actually it, it's not about your family, it's about the people that you meet and pick up along the way. They become your family. This is a common theme in Pixar movies. Mm -hmm. A film like Monsters University is a good example where mm -hmm. a misfit band of monsters become family. The Lego Batman movie has a, a whole musical number, Friends Are Family, um, mm -hmm. about being able to pick your, your, your um, family. Um, but then actually the film isn't about that at all, because it is about roots and connection and nuclear family. And, and so Hector initially being like a father figure to him, is, is an interesting, mm -hmm. or for me, is then subverted or upturned when Hector actually is part of that lineage and part of that yes. sort of family. And so I, I, I thought that was quite a, kind of a nice, I, I thought it was going to go down the buddy movie structure and they would just, would just kind of pair up. But actually, to have them related or to have them connected felt, felt really interesting. I think the film is very much about family yeah. in the most traditional yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, so which is, you know, in one way is a good thing, and in other ways, you know, one could see it as a limitation, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's, I think it's very strongly mm. uh, about that in a way that... Uh, um, you know, it's probably universal. I, you know, I think certainly kind of one of the aims of uh, uh, Disney 
uh, and Pixar is to make these films as available and as accessible to everyone as possible and kind of, you know, I'm sure this is one of the ways of, of doing that. Um, I, I think one of the things, I, I, I'd like to talk about two things if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, the first one that really kind of impressed me was how the film is conversant with film history. So I've been mentioning you know, Mexican film history. There are references to Dolores del Rio, to Macario, to Maria Felix, to Jorge Negrete, to all of those, the, all the famous ones. Emiliano Fernandez films, everything. Um, but actually there were also kind of, you know, references to just movies, right? I love the moment where, um, is it the Frida Kahlo uh, person who says, oh, you know, we want a musical number and the, the is it, the papaya the and the yeah. the yeah, all the people coming out the papaya and then the cactus. That's yeah. that's pretty cool. That yeah. moment is brilliant because she she brings up the poetry. She says something like, "Now I am this, yeah, and I imbibe that, and this means that, right? Yeah." And then kind of she organizes it as a musical mem- number to kind of evoke and kind of symbolize what is uttered as a kind of poetry, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of brilliant and also indicative of all of these different layers that the film is working at. Right, because it's kind of it's telling you what the tropes are, the beauty of the tropes, right? And then actually, kind of what is involved. So this thing about bring up this instrument and yeah, yeah. kind of. Uh, um, and then I think you know Mike also mentioned how funny it is yeah. that you know uh, the staging of that. So when she's saying, "Oh, bring up this instrument," she's actually not looking at the musicians at all. She just knows she's got the power to make them do what she wants, right? Yeah, and that's Miguel kind of, says. Miguel says it should have a little bit of music. Yeah, maybe, like maybe something. Duh, 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 duh. And then she ma- ma- maintain, maintains eye contact with him, mm. but yeah. uh, indicates to the orchestra off screen. It's fantastic. And they just do what she says, mm. which is wonderful. And, and also, you know, the other funny thing about that scene is that she's just clearly such a kind of mad sort of presence that she can marshal all these people to do exactly what she, the mm. crazy thing she needs them to do. Mm. Yeah. But maybe one of the reasons why the film is so legible yeah. is because it's explaining the rules to you as you go along, mm-hmm. even in terms of what a musical, yeah, what this musical number should <laughs> do or is expected to do, or the fact that it's kind of like poetic, yeah, that kind of it's meant to symbolize as well as just, yeah, evoke. Yeah, um, I thought that was brilliant that bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, the film is is playing, as I say, broadly about that. I guess I guess back to the sort of I was saying about sort of a, a figurative as much as literal fantasy spaces. Mm-hmm. It it constantly evokes its opportunities to be interpreted that way, right? And by doing things like staging staging its own metaphor on on stage like that, which I, which I think is great. And I th- and I, back to sort of the issue of of family. I think another way it universalizes it, and and in a, in for me a, 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 a nicer way is that I actually as much as it is about family in a traditional sense. I think words like um, history and heritage could become uh, you'd be used as synonyms for yes. what the word world, what the film uh, really means by that word family, and that's contrasted with um, uh, the villain uh, de Cruz. Ernesto de la Cruz's mm. sort of mantra, which is "seize your moment." Where actually, I think in another in another uh, popular uh, studio cartoon would be. The thing, the the message of the film, right? Yes. Seize your moment. Yeah. Uh, it, absolutely. But here it's it's well, it is praiseworthy for the, for for Miguel at the start, and then he realizes that seizing your moment actually means rejecting those that surround you and those that have got you to your moment, so or, to speak. Or murder. Or mu- yeah, 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 or even worse, <laughs> even more theft, murder, and the destruction of the dead. So um, you know, um, so that's that's an interesting thing it's playing with as well. But I, I like that the, the kind of the thing with lots of I guess lots of films, or there are many films that you could say do do family but this one seems to be invested in kind of quite com- because of its ensemble cast and the, the sort of the um, and the fact that the film sets up the shoemaking business that the family is invested in and that, that Miguel should we're, we're gonna uh, here is an apron you are going to be the next I think you should work in the workshop sort of thing um, so it plays with the kind of complexity of him not him shunning to some extent his family business um, mm-hmm. but also the kind of he has quite a fractious relationship um, with other members of his family um, and actually, what I think the the final musical number where all the family, both living and dead, are performing together yes. is is kind of the culmination of what the, the the film is about. But I like the fact that it nuances this idea of yeah, it's about family. Well, a lot of Pixar films are about family, but this one really gives it detail. This and is nuance about a different kind of family. Yeah. Like to be fair to the film, it's a much more expansive notion yeah. of family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. It includes an extended family, all your uncles and cousins. Yeah, yeah like it's an expansive notion. And also the, the, you know, the, I suppose the, th- part of the plot of the film 
it, I mean, because, um, you know, what's specified is that if you remember somebody, they live on. Mm. It actually doesn't specify that it has to be a member of your family, does it? No, in, in fact, um, you have um, at Ernesto de la Cruz's mansion, he says, all of these gifts that come from people all over the world right. give me stuff. Remember him. All, all have my yeah. picture on their, um, on their offrenders because I'm a world famous star. So, yeah, so he's, because he's surprised that he has a living descendant, right? So, you know, yeah. well, my thinking is that he didn't have children, but nonetheless. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So actually, that's a very expansive notion of family, a very inclusive yeah. notion of family. And the scene that you were talking about where, um, where Hector. Hector uh, takes uh, Miguel to the, yeah. place, the, the docks where all the yeah, other people who are it. in the process of being forgotten, they're not on anybody's offrenders, so they don't get to visit the land of the living. Um, they're all there and they become each other's family. And yeah, they call, exactly. We call each other cousin, we call each other brother and sister. Ah, yes, that's right. And, um, and there is a mention there of, uh, uh, I forget the name of the character who passes away, who they... That they Cheech? Can't remember. The, the second um, death here, which is really the, chilling, but really the second effective. Death, exactly. When you're forgotten, notion. you're gone yeah. forever. Second death. Yeah. 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 <laughs> which is one of those things. I mean, that's one of those storytelling devices. that means like there is some jeopardy in. Like, well, this is absolutely yeah. Lots of fantasy um, uh, stories suffer from that problem. As soon as you yeah. invoke a story in a world where everyone's already dead, what could possibly happen that's worse? You know. Yeah. But it's very, <laughs> but it works really well. I think it's very smart, and yeah, it, it works really well with what the story's talking about. Um, but. Um, uh, he dies, and that obviously that affects Miguel, and he says, "But I could remember him. I could take his photo back." And goes, and, and Hector goes, "It doesn't work like that. You have to have known them in real life." Mm. You know, so there's 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 an aspect. It's interesting what you're talking about how how the world how, how the film goes from the land of the living to the land of the dead and back again, um, because the worlds the worlds are connected insofar as people in the land of the dead are constantly worried about what's happening in the land of the living. Mm -hmm. You know, because they're particularly Hector. He's in the process of being forgotten by Coco. And there's there's a there's like a, a like a telekinetic sort of sort of thing, which I, I you know you brought up <coughs> Tron. I don't remember that being an element of Tron, where like what happened on in the real world once they were inside the computer kind of affected them, you know. But that's kind of what's happening here. You know, what's happening in the, in the real world back in the land of the living is materially affecting what's going on in the land of the dead. So they're kind of constantly aware of it, which I think is really interesting because you you. You see very little of the land of, of the living, mm. in a way. It's there at the start and it's there at the yeah. end. Most of the film is spent in the land of the dead, but you're always aware of the yeah, land of the living. Yeah. They're constantly talking about it. It's constantly a worry. And it's constantly something that they want to, they kind of, they want to be a part of. You know, um, Hector's trying to get back there every year. You know, the, the woman at um, the woman at sort of immigration or customs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's clearly used to him, kind of trying to cheat his way uh, into the land of the living, um, and she just kind of you know, goes up oh, next, try yeah, next time Hector or whatever. Um, so it's kind of it's a constant sort of sort of struggle to get there, and of course all he wants is to see Coco again. So I don't know. There's uh, there's something that seems really novel about how kind of how alive that connection is, despite the fact that it's kind of it's in the background. It's just talked about all the time. You're constantly yeah. aware, and you kind of see its effects visually. So and again, connecting this back to this idea of light, that when the characters are almost forgotten or on the cusp of being being forgotten, they're sort of charged yeah. with this light that shoots through them. Um, and yeah, Chicharon, so a friend of Hector's who becomes forgotten in the land of the dead, when he dematerializes effectively, when he, he kind dissolves. of glows, dissolves, and then sort of fades away. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's right, the, the land of the dead is constantly a world of kind of consequence because it, it relies on the activities that, as you say, we don't really see in the land of the living. When, when, when we're in the land of the dead, the film stays there yeah. and we see its consequence through various kind of actions and, and characters and stuff. There's also, a, we talk about sort of the Wizard of Oz style doubling, which happens in these sort of movies. One aspect of the doubling that perhaps we haven't mentioned that is occurring to me as we're having this conversation is, yes, we have the doubling of the, 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 the pictures we've seen of, of the, the, the family members in real life and then the, the, the sort of skeleton versions of them. But they're also doubling in terms of generations. Yes. So we have the, we have the family, that are, the, the generation that are dead who have an extremely similar family structure to the way that it's functioning in life. So we have the two... Uh, grandma yeah, figures, right, with, who are basically the same character, but 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 operating across generations. Then you have the more subservient sort of uncles and aunts running yes. around doing her bidding, sort of while she <laughs> imposes yes. this no music rule and things like that. And what you have there is a dialogue that's generational, right? Yes. The, the, the generations mirror one another and everything. I don't know what that's saying about what it's trying to say about time or or. or uh, progress throughout generations or anything like that but it certainly stitches the worlds together because actually most of the dead characters have a real life and you were there and you were there when you were there kind of equivalency yes, don't they but the equivalency isn't just 
the pictures they've got on the page, it's their it's their counterpart in the next generation. Yes, and um, and, and it happens through Miguel as well. Like it, it, you know, in his real life, he's got his entire family telling him, "You can't do this. You have to do this. You can't play music." Mm-hmm. And he gets to the land of the dead and exactly. the same thing. Same stipulations. Exactly. And he's fighting a similar, as you say, kind of grandmother figure, yes. um, who who has absolute control over everything in their family. You know, you, I mean, you don't get that impression quite so much in the real world with um, with his. Uh, uh, with his grandmother, uh-huh. uh, but you, but you don't have a little bit, and obviously, uh, and, and in a way, she's really just acting through Mamo Melda. Mm-hmm. Like yes. Mamo Melda, sort of, she's her, she's her uh, representative uh, in in the real world, still kind of keeping the the rules alive. Mm-hmm. Well, sort of generational trauma, sort of going down, like <laughs> trickling down the characters, because we've got one that's not quite as extreme but similar, and you know, you get the impression that uh, Miguel's mother or, or father. It's, it's not quite clear which one's related um, through blood, but is is enacting that, but slightly less, yeah. more passively, with a slight more sort of um, willingness to engage with some level of him him being a musician and all mm. this sort of stuff. So it's it's interesting how it also sets that dialogue. Of you've got these sort of the, the 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 cross characters and things like that. And I think it's great that what's what's really subtle is that that is the conflict. That's it because mm-hmm. so when um, when Miguel goes to the land of the dead. Uh, and they, they, they go to the sort of immigration office where they're trying to work it out and they find out, yeah, he's cursed, it's a family curse, so you can go back. And, you go, and this is like 25 minutes into the film, you can go back. Great, problem solved. Yeah. But of course, what happens is the stipulation is you can only go back if you never play music again. That's Mamo Melda's stipulation. Mm-hmm. And he immediately steals the guitar again, ignores mm-hmm. it, goes to it. So he could go home if he wanted to. The, the problem is not how am I going to get home. The problem is how am I going to, as you said, kind of be who I am and and get my family to accept this because there's no way he has any intention of giving him music. And I love that the film has kind of, instead of having one sort of moral at the end of it, it has about five because mm-hmm. people people all over are learning lessons. So at one point, he um, uh, Miguel says, I'm ready to go home and accept your conditions. And then before they get the chance to do anything, they kind of move on But because they need to get uh, Hector's photo back. Yeah. And then by the time they've got Hector's photo back, Mamma Melda has changed her mind and says no stipulations. You can just go home. Yeah. You know, so so she's learned a lesson. He's learned a lesson. Like he learns the lesson, Miguel, to do what his family says, and then that's upturned a little bit later on. He says, "But okay, but now our family says that you can do what you like." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering whether the. I mean, before we, I just like to kind of pick up on that music because music's something we've sort of talked about and it's a lot of the stuff around the film is that this is Pixar's first musical and then also does it qualify as a musical and then you'll mention definitely the music. Yeah, <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about <laughs> um, but actually and there are, but there are a couple, kind of a couple of songs I suppose Monsters Inc has a couple of songs that the characters perform but isn't a musical yeah. but this one music is in the film of course and it's, it's and it has musical numbers yeah it yeah. has but it hasn't but it, and it has numbers that are particularly connected to characters that so that music plays a role in releasing characters mm. who previously had no voice uh, and Hector says about his, his wife you know you've still got it you've still got that yeah. got that voice right at the end so um, yeah it's kind of the sound or the music of Pixar's Pixar's first musical that we then hear right back at the start you know when we hear that guitar refrain over the magic mm. magic castle kind of tells us that this is this is Pixar's first musical and it's it's a, it's a I think if I can correct, I think it's trumpets actually, or trumpets. Oh, is it trumpets? Over, over the, I think guitar, a guitar comes into it once the voiceover starts. But I think over the Disney Castle, I think it's trumpets. It's gonna go. Well, what Alex will do is he'll probably edit that into us talking, and so this conversation won't mean anything because one of us will be right, and it will. But you're certainly right that it's definitely kind of Mexican, Latino style. with that I, I so I, I mean I, I hate I hate to just know on a note of, of a downer but I, we have been very enthusiastic I just wanted to point out two things about the movie that I think don't make it make make me think okay here are, here are things that don't make it perfect for me mm-hmm. and one one is a tiny thing which is I don't think remember me is a particularly rememberable song oh, I love oh, okay <laughs> so that's a t- that's I'll tell a you taste. what it is about remember yeah. me yeah. and it's really and I think it works really well for the movie is that the first time you hear it it doesn't kind of make sense it, you hear it yeah. as Ernesto de la Cruz sure. big number that made him famous mm-hmm. and what you see is him performing it on a huge stage with loads mm-hmm. of people and it's a show tune remember me yeah and you go oh this it's great, but there's something kind of not quite right. And it's when you hear, you see the flashback of Hector singing it to Coco when she's a little girl, mm. and it's and it's personal, and it's just for them, and it's just him and a guitar. That song makes sense then, and you go, that's what it was meant to be. 
Go yeah, on. well, no, that, that, that just made me think that this is where the family issue comes in because if we're saying that Ernesto de la Cruz receives all these gifts from his quote-unquote family, that is, mm-hmm. they're his fans. And so when we see that musical number and he's performing it to his fans, it's not as meaningful as yes, it is yeah. when it's sung between kind of two characters who are yes. kind of connected in a way that Ernesto de la Cruz is never quite connected to his fans, simply because the film then tells us that he's lied about his identity. The film... One of the things that Mike was saying at the beginning about, you know, the, the beauty of its structure yeah. is the way that you have, you know, one element that's kind of redeployed and redeployed and yeah, that kind of recurs throughout, you know, the film in different guises and fulfilling different purposes. And this, that song is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you hear it about, I don't know, yeah. six you or eight times, you hear it a lot, yeah. right? Um, and sometimes just as a refrain of a few strings and sometimes like as a full-blown production number and sometimes as a ballad, right? It, and it actually has different arrangements mm-hmm. often, right? So, so I, I, th- I, 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 I loved it. Um, and actually, it doesn't have many musical numbers. Like, no, no, no. The only one I can think of is Coco Loco. Mm-hmm. It has, it has, it has a, Coco Loco. It yeah. has Remember Me sort of a couple of times. Um, it has The World Is Me Familiar, which gets cut off when he falls into the pool. Um, it has the song that he sings to uh, the character who dies, can't remember again his name. So it has about five or six numbers, but it's not a kind of full, it's not like one song going into the next kind of music. Yeah, yeah, at all. yeah. But it also has strands, right? So often you'll hear just a few bars of a Chavela Vargas song or Natalia Lafugarde coming in at the end, right? Kind of, it has just like just a few bars of songs mm-hmm. that are kind of instantly recognizable that lead on to something else. It has La, La Llorona as well. La Llorona, that's what I meant. Which he sings on stage, and it has that wonderful thing where it, 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 it's a Mexican, it's this kind of Hispanic or Latino dance number, it's a tango, you know, like those dances are all about, you know, kind of, kind of uh, kiss chase with the girl sort of thing, like she's going away, she's coming back, or am I going to get her or not? And, this, and then of Is course that? it's a, well, those da- no, those dances are. Okay, no, the dance. I'm uh, and, then th- and then the way it's kind of, the way it's kind of, configured in the film is it's a fight over the photo mm. but they kind of do it as mm. a sort of tango yes, dance yes, you know what yes, I mean yes, okay. which is great yeah, there's that one shot in particular where the camera tracks to the right as uh, she escapes De La Cruz's grasp and then he chases after her with these lunges and it's it's real it's a really funny shot I think mm. because it's it's so aping mm-hmm. those, those kind of dances so, I think it's great um, this, so I was going to say, what's your read on that one? So you proved me wrong on that, so that's good. We have proved you wrong. Prove you wrong on the second, and then, I, then I'm happy. I'm excited about your someone. second one, Alex. So the second one is, is that I do think, it, when I was watching it, I was actually, I worked out where it was going quite quickly. And obviously, I'm not expecting a movie that's painting this broader canvas, this kind of audience, to necessarily bamboozle me with its plotting, and that's not a problem. But I, I did start to feel a certain... Pixar formula starting to emerge here that I'm noticing in a lot of these movies which is the you have a sort of um, often famous avuncular figure that the protagonist in, uh, looks up to that person turns out about an hour and 15 minutes into the movie to be the evil uh, mastermind behind all of this and then there's another character who has been pestering the, the person you know for this time so to me there is a certain Pixar template as much as we celebrate Pixar for sort of breaking templates I feel they have Got themselves in a little bit of a rut where, where, where I, you know, Ernesto de la Cruz fits very nicely with uh, the hit, the villain in Up, mm. with uh, the the boss in Monsters Inc, with not uh, so Cug and Bear in Toy Story Three, um, with um, with all these figures. Well, even you know, Wreck It Ralph, um, Wreck It Ralph, Zootopia, Frozen, Hands. You know, there's there's lots of examples where a character is, and I, and I don't know what that means. Um, but there's certainly a, a cluster of movies where duplicity is really important, that, that a character previously considered good is revealed, or certainly lauded as a, her- a hero. Mm. Uh, and um, I don't, I, I don't know what... Well, we were talking about this off-air, because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these lovely interpretations that's yeah. so cute and neat that it's nice to talk about, but it's com- probably complete nonsense. So one of the um, interpretations around um, these kinds of duplicitous figures uh, that originated around 2010 in, with Toy Story 3, which was also directed by Lee Yunkrich, um, is the relationship between Lotso and John Lasseter. So Lasseter being this figure that is previously lauded and ultimately, uh-huh. as of you know, recently, was then revealed to have taken quote-unquote missteps and then kind of removed from Pixar and, and Disney. Uh, and there is a sort of rumour mill, if you like, going around, particularly online, that these kinds of figures, Lotso is probably the most 
most kind of uh, famous example, um, but characters that are lauded in a particular kind of way as kind of creative geniuses who run the rule over certain kinds of environments. Sunnyside in Toy Story 3, or in the case of, of uh, Dilla Cruz in, in Coco, uh, a figure who is immortalised on a statue and, and people love. The spirit of music, the spirit is of Is then the revealed to have mm. less than um, kind of uh, positive what's mm. the word motivations I guess um, and so there's lots of kind of stuff online that ca can't be true given that it would require a lot of people and John Lasseter to oversee a group of films <laughs> that were about him um, but there is uh, it's been read into that these sorts of films that involve this kind of character are are about John Lasseter well, that's a rumour yeah. disclaimer <laughs> that's a rumour yeah. I think one of the things that's, that, that those people slash characters have in common is that they don't think they'll ever be beaten they don't even consider what they're doing wrong because they kind of live in that world so much they just they're doing what they're doing so um, like the idea that uh, uh, how do I not get in trouble the idea that, <laughs> uh, the idea that John Lasseter would sort of say oh no this is about me I must put a stop to it, it like if he was doing kind of the missteps doing wrong things whatever mm. kind of wouldn't even occur to you if you're in that situation because you, that's just not the world you live in you don't yeah. live in the world where you think that anything you do could be wrong there's a few as I said it, it is what it is is that there's this idea of kind of a secret villain um, yeah. and so there is a few few bits online that people can search and enjoy creating these sort of fan theories which is which you but know are I, interesting in a lot of themselves I, I think I think more Broadly, more interestingly than that is that there is this sort of tension emerging in Pixar movies now about a certain template that is emerging, and and and, and I and I just sort of curious as to how because well, as soon as a, a, fan, a Disney template emerged, right, it becomes both an interpretive strategy for the movies, a production strategy for making them, and then what we end up doing is getting into this almost. Um, uh, sandbox toy mentality where the, the formula remains the same. We just switch yes. what, well, what, who get, who, what characters are playing that formula out. But I mean, let's kind of switch it around. Sure. So let's say that that does exist. You know, um, is that necessarily a bad thing? I, for example, you know, you can argue that basically, you know, the story of, you know, ninety percent of the musicals you see is the same. <laughs> the story of like ninety-five percent of the westerns you see is the same. Yeah. Right? It's not that structure, that main plot kind of structure that is what what makes it um, a better or worse western, right? So, you know, I can imagine for example that many films might have the structure of Coco, mm -hmm. you know, and in fact, if you take it to a, a kind of a certain structuralist argument, you know, there's, what do they say, there's seven plots? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, kind of what makes it special is actually the articulation mm -hmm. of all of these elements, you know, kind of, Mike and I were talking just about that, that moment where the dog goes to eat the ofrenda, and actually, just how the movement in his eyes, <laughs> and the timing of that movement, and, mm -hmm. you know, the visualizing of that moment, is so great, right? So, Yes, it might have an overall arcing structure that one can see repeated in many Pixar films, you know, and that may or may not be a good thing, you know. Um, but actually, that doesn't take away from the, you know, the precise kind of uh, um, articulation of, of of story and feeling and emotion that this particular film kind of evokes. Yeah, I think that's. Right? A, I think that. Sorry, you. I, I think what what you were saying about. Um, I think what you're saying about that particular archetype that you've identified of, of the kind of duplicitous villain is interesting. I picked up on that, and that's an interesting one to think about, and I will. But I, um, I do remember, thinking about Pixar specifically, I remember something that Trey Parker and Matt Stone said years ago um, about Pixar, the guys who write South Park, mm -hmm. um, where they, they were talking about kind of constantly having to kind of relearn how to write themselves in a way. And they said, you look at Pixar, if you look at their trailers, you can tell, or, or look at the first five minutes of their films, you can tell exactly how things are going to go. You can, you can, he's going to be good, he's going to be bad, they're going to do this. You know exactly how things are going to go, but what they do is it allows them to be really original in the scenes, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what you were getting at, where it's, it, you know, as you say, the articulation, and actually, um, once you've accepted that there's going to be a structure of things start off here, they go bad, they go well, and they end up very nice. It's, it's exactly how that happens and what you're saying within the scenes that Pixar is really good at being original with. Yeah. Once you kind of accepted that the structure itself isn't necessarily yeah. going to be the interesting original part. Well, it, it, you're rehearsing a, a, a well-trodden debate in sort of fantasy criticism, which uh, is fantasy is both the most anxious and the most free genre, right? In that on supposedly it's a genre you can do any, whatever you like. But as soon as, well, we, I suspect we all know who anyone's ever set a student an assignment, yeah? As soon as you can say you do whatever you like, that creates anxiety, because doing whatever 
you like is the killer of creativity mm-hmm. because how do you do whatever you like? You have to have something to work with, right? And stru- yes. So actually fantasy is one of the most formulaic genres because it relies on structure. And you're right, the devil's in the detail, not in the structure. It's mm-hmm. how you use the structure. So, so it's, it's rehearsing a... a a well-turned back, and and you you know I think I think you're I think I think you're you're. Right. I think I guess the structure um, is kind of what makes something a genre. You know, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. the only thing, no. but it's one of the things. And and you know th- when you go and see a western, when you go and see a musical, you you have a pretty decent sense of the way things are going to go. But that doesn't mean that one musical is the same as another. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I guess the, the the this goes back to our first the first point that, that Jose made about the Mexican. This is that it's fun and exciting and refreshing and original to see a Pixar template in this kind of, if, if the mm-hmm. devil is in the detail and the structure is the framework that kind of solidifies and makes everything hang together, that's what you, what do you then hang on it? Well, this film hangs a totally different set of characters and settings and locations and, and yeah. cultures in this case. Yes. And that's maybe, the structure is the, the clothes line is the same, but the clothes are different. <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and just to go back to the point about the music, uh, it's one of the things that I found most astonishing, right? Because it's not just, I mean, so what you, you could have said a film in Mexico and done the whole Broadway Frozen style soundtrack mm. to it, right? But actually, this is a American, so this is mm. Mexican type music. It's kind of... Yeah, it, it, it is that tradition of music. It has a kind of a slightly different beat and, and so on, right? It's kind of, it's working with Mexican, yeah. well, particularly Mexican yeah. types of, of music, right? Which might be why it sounds strange or, you know, why it's not, it might not be as instantly. Mm. I mean, I'm not, I also, you know, it might also not be good. I'm just saying. No, I'm no, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no criteria. But actually the fact that it's done in that particular vernacular yeah. rather than choosing which w- would be the usual Disney thing of choosing like a, a kind of a Broadway yeah, yeah get, getting Mulan to sing a sort of Broadway ballad in Ex- yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly I, I thought that was interesting yeah, yeah, right, yeah. there is there is so much more we could say I yeah. feel we should we should wrap things up Absolutely. I was going to make a joke about we'll do the second episode we'll, we'll reconvene in the afterlife <laughs> and do this again but I won't make that joke um, so all that remains for me to say is thank you Jose thank you Michael for, for joining us for Coco thank you Alex um, yeah. where can our listeners find you what is your where can I find you on social media um e- e- the eavesdropping team where can we find yeah, you? they want to hear more <laughs> eavesdropping at the movies is uh well we have a blog eavesdropping at movies.com where you can find the full list of all 120 something podcasts we've done by this point and Great. We keep on doing more we had better get our finger out <laughs> 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 we've got a lot of work a lot lower quality control um, we're uh, on twitter we're at eavesdrop movies great uh, on facebook you can find us eavesdropping at the movies and if you search for eavesdropping at movies on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud and YouTube, we've got channels and all of those. So you can subscribe to us. Excellent. And get all the latest podcasts. Thank it's you. Terrific. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. You can find us obviously um, at Fananim Research on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, and uh, on the website fancy-animation.org. You certainly can. Um, for now, we will say goodbye. Goodbye. Cheerio. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me Don't let it make you cry For even if I'm far away I hold you in my heart I sing a secret song to you Each night we are apart Remember me Though I have to travel far Remember me Each time you hear a sad guitar Know that I'm with you